Senator Ryan Ament served as a captain in the United States Army during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Today, he fights for kids to get a better education. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, President of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. And uh, my guest today is Senator Ryan Ament. Uh, Ryan, thanks for uh, joining me here on Brews and Views. Happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, well, we're in uh, downtown Lancaster, uh, which is a bit north of home for you. Uh, you are in the county of Lancaster, um, but uh, you started in the House and have moved to the Senate. But before we get into all of that and the policy issues that uh, animate you, uh, talk about uh, growing up uh, in Lancaster County. Yeah, I grew up on a uh, dairy farm, Southern Lancaster County. My dad was a uh, dairy farmer in Drewmore Township the first uh, 10 years or so of my life. Uh, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, for many generations prior to me were, were farmers. Uh, it was a wonderful way to grow up. I, uh, we left the farm around the time that I was 10, moved into Quarryville. So I spent uh, my middle school and high school years in Quarryville. Uh, by the time I was in high school, uh, I had a real interest in going to a military college. And so was was searching, looking at my options from U.S. military academy service, uh, federal service academies to our uh, some of the state uh, military schools, such as the Citadel, Virginia Military Institute, and ultimately decided to go to the Citadel. So, so, so but, yeah, but before we get to the Citadel, and, and of course I want to talk about your time uh, in, in uh -huh. Iraq and, and your, your service, um, but you, you, your parents got out of the uh, uh, dairy business. I know that's a rough one. I mean, because that's yeah. a seven days a week. Uh, that's, that's a tough lifestyle. It was. And dad went right from high school to the farm. And so, you know, he would tell you that he was not a businessman. He knew farming, but he didn't know business. Mm -hmm. And uh, the irony of that is he eventually started his own small trucking company and uh, was very successful uh, later in life. But at the time, he was 18, 19 years of age when he when he left home he, and he started his own uh, farming business, married my mom right out of high school. And uh, he just he, he enjoyed farming, but he didn't enjoy at that time yeah. the business aspect of it. It was a small dairy farm, about 30, 36 cows. And you have to have that, right? You got you to gotta be a, you're a small businessman at the end of the day. Uh, you got to be able to figure that part of the, the business out. That, that's exactly right. And, and dad, he, he found, he, he enjoyed, as I said, he enjoyed the farming. And uh, he, he particularly enjoyed tractors and the field work. And he enjoyed the trucking. And so uh, around 1985, 1986, he decided to, uh, to get out of farming and uh, go uh, drive truck. Mm -hmm. And he was a, uh, was a milk truck driver, worked for uh, D&K Graham, a company out of Christiana, uh, for about 15 years before he decided to branch out and buy his own truck. Bought okay. his own truck, uh, hauled uh, propane, liquid natural gas, and then he started to add trucks. And uh, by the time of his passing, just a couple of years ago, um, he had, I believe, eight drivers, seven trucks, seven or eight trucks, eight drivers, and had a small business and was doing quite well with it. So yeah, the irony was he got out of farming because he didn't like business, but ended up growing a business late, late in life. Well, that, that's great because that's the, that's kind of the entrepreneurial yeah. story that uh, we love to tell in America that, uh, Hey, you can work on a farm and, and start a business, uh, or turn something, uh, uh, that you are doing into something more profitable and 
uh, be the captain of your own ship. Uh, it, that's exactly uh, right. So uh, brothers and sisters uh, growing one, up? One younger brother. Uh-huh. Uh, my brother Greg uh, is four years younger than I. He lives in Spartanburg, South Carolina. It's funny, I look, I look back on it. When I was in high school, uh, as much as I loved Southern Lancaster County, I was I was one of those kids. I was leaving and never coming back. Mm. I wanted to I wanted to go live uh, elsewhere. I wanted to travel, do other things, and uh, so I, I made the decision to go to college in uh, South Carolina. My brother was a bit of a homebody. Uh, I came back <laughs> after four years of college, four years of active duty, and around the time that I came home, Greg decided that he wanted to go south, and he ended up uh, getting a teaching job in Walterboro, South Carolina, uh, just outside of Charleston, so where I had been in college, uh-huh. and then uh, met his wife, and he now teaches. They live, uh, they have two daughters, live in Spartanburg, South Carolina. So he's he was the one you thought would stay a Pennsylvania yeah, his entire life, and he, was now a, he's, he went to college, uh, he majored in, as I, I, I like to kid him, he majored in baseball at, uh, uh, at nice. Lock Haven, then decided he had to really concentrate on getting a degree, ended up getting a teaching degree from Westchester uh, after a sports management degree at So he's at one, of those, one of those teachers we've exported, right? <laughs> that's uh, that's right. State. Yes, he got yeah. that sports management degree. Yeah. He, he figured out there's really nothing he can do with that. That was what he studied <laughs> while he was playing baseball at Lock Haven, and uh, then ended up at Westchester, got his teaching degree, went to, uh, went to South Carolina. So he and his two daughters and his wife, uh, Loring, live in Spartan South Carolina, and my mom now lives with us. I mentioned my father uh-huh. passed away two years ago. Uh, we bought a home. We moved uh, in West Hempfield uh, about a year ago now, just about a year. Uh, mom moved in with us in, in law quarters, and that's just been a real blessing to have her and, with us. And you, your, your wife, who, uh, for full disclosure, is my <laughs> 16-year-old daughter's uh, civics teacher, yeah, uh, and she right. loves uh, Kate as, as her teacher. So, um, But uh, was your family political? I mean, did you grow up in a, a political household that uh, you guys were paying attention to politics? You know, it's interesting because my family, I, I don't know, they've yet figured out where I came from because <laughs> they, they, they really weren't. Now, my it wasn't that they were not political, uh-huh. but that wasn't what, we didn't have mealtime conversations yeah. around political issues. Uh, I didn't hear my parents talk a lot about voting and candidates, and, and so they were not terribly politically engaged. Um, now, my mom loved history. And so I remember as a, as a child, uh, my mom and I, it was an activity we did together, kept scrapbooks. So we would cut out newspaper articles of the major news stories of the day. So, uh, you know, I'm dating myself, so you can sort of figure out quickly how old I am. Um, the early news stories, uh, President Reagan's election in 1980, I was born in 1976. But the, when we first started doing the scrapbooks, really started in the Reagan years. So the, uh, the Reagan election, the assassination attempt on President Reagan in the early 1980s, um, through his re-election, the Challenger disaster in 1986. So, so I developed, I really think for my mother, this love of history. And that love of history mm-hmm. really is what led to an interest, I think, in, in political history and in politics for, for me. I grew up in the Reagan era. I was inspired yeah. by President Reagan. And uh, you know, I remember begging my parents to allow me to stay up to watch his State of the Union addresses uh, when I was in elementary school. So uh, you mentioned that uh, you went to the Citadel mm-hmm. in in uh, South Carolina, uh, but that you were exploring all of the the military. Cat is that in your uh, family blood that uh, uh, serving in the military, or was that just something that? was part of uh, your interest in, in America, all of that. How, yeah, that I, think it, I think it uh, was directly related to my love for uh, American history and had a real interest in our American military heroes. 
Um, I think that's what initially drew me to mm -hmm. it. Uh, had a close family friend, still close family friends, uh, Len Brown, who is now a judge in Lancaster yeah, County. Sure. Uh, Len, at the time that I was in middle school, uh, my middle school years, was at West Point. And uh, his family, uh, on two occasions, invited me to join them to visit Len while he was a cadet at West Point. Tended a football game, uh, Air Force, uh, Army, sat in the rain, and they lost. Uh, and then invited me back for his graduation. <laughs> but you caught the cold for... Uh, I did, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I, I caught the buzz yeah. for doing something different, something yeah. unique, and, and, and having a desire to serve. Mm -hmm. And uh, they also invited me back to Len's graduation. He graduated in uh, June of 1991, which was right after the Gulf War, and President Bush, President Bush Sr. was the speaker that year, uh, at Len's graduation. And so uh, I think that, that I, I further caught the bug mm -hmm. for uh, both for political service, uh, uh, public service, as well as the military and going to a military college. And so you end up at the Citadel, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, you go into uh, full-time service in the Army, yes, right? Yes, uh, that's right. And rose to the rank of captain. I was a kid, uh, that's uh, right. And uh, even commanded uh, troops uh, in, in Iraq. Uh, yeah. talk, talk about that, your experience in the military and what that taught you, and why didn't you make a career of that? Uh, <laughs> it was a phenomenal experience. Yeah. And, and I encourage young people, men and women, uh, in, in high school, young men and women, to, to seriously contemplate serving in the military. Um, I learned a lot about myself. Um, I learned a lot about leadership. I can't think of a finer yeah. leadership laboratory uh, to be given the responsibility of the lives, the welfare, the training, uh, the financial responsibility at, at such a young age. Uh, I was 22 when I, when I became a rifle platoon leader. I had many leaders, squad leaders, team leaders that were younger than I. Um, so it was just a phenomenal experience. And there's no question um, that has opened for doors for me since, particularly serving in Lancaster County. Uh, I think it, it uh, opened doors earlier uh, for me politically. Uh, just gave me, I think, credibility with mm -hmm. folks. When I walked in the room, even though I was young, getting involved in politics, um, having the combat experience, having the military experience, was, was uh, just gave me real credibility with folks. So uh, I encourage it. It was a wonderful experience for me. I love my time at the Citadel. Uh, I was an education major, but I had contracted with the Army, uh, had an ROTC scholarship very early uh, in my time at the Citadel. So I, I knew throughout my academic career that I was going to uh, was going to be serving on active duty. Was uh, I graduated in 1999, was commissioned a second lieutenant in the Army. It was branched infantry, and so I went first to Fort Benning, Georgia, did infantry training there, the infantry officer basic course, uh, the mechanized leaders course, so I learned about the Bradley fighting vehicle, uh, airborne school, jumped out of airplanes, was qualified to do that, uh, and then went to Fort uh, Carson, Colorado, uh, where I served as a rifle platoon leader, so uh, responsible for 40 infantrymen, a mechanized infantrymen, four Bradley fighting vehicles, uh, was quickly promoted to first lieutenant after about seven months as a rifle platoon leader. First lieutenant became a company executive officer, so second in command of a company of 150. Mm -hmm. um, I was serving in that position on September the 11th, and it became quite clear shortly thereafter that we were preparing for deployment overseas, ultimately to Iraq. Uh, deployed to Iraq in uh, April of 2003, very early in the initial invasion, uh, initial operations in Iraq. Um, and my company commander was wounded um, four days into combat operations during an airfield seizure uh, north of Baghdad, Balad. Uh, we were taking a small arms fire, mortar fire. Uh, my commander was wounded, and uh, I assumed command. And uh, four days in, four days in, I was pushing 20, the deep end. Yeah, I was twenty six. <laughs> you know, and I share this. I, 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 you know, again, I, I don't often now get the opportunity to talk to high school students. Uh, 
about my military experience as much as I'm invited to talk about my public service. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I was I was uh, was pretty regularly invited to come into schools to talk about military experience. And I share with young people that when I think back, uh, and I'm not just talking about myself, I'm talking about folks who were younger than me serving in leadership positions in, in a combat theater. Mm -hmm. When I think back on the responsibility that this country places on the shoulders of young people yes. and how how well they perform under incredible stress. It, it's inspiring. It inspires me it's yet It's kind today. of when you set high expectations, uh, we learn to rise to them, right? Yes, uh, that's So right. the idea that of, uh, well, we can't expect too much of our young people. We that's need right. to let them be adolescents and uh, never have to grow up until maybe you're 30 to move out of your parents' uh, basement. That's I mean, w this is, a, this, I think, a problem is that we have set such low expectations. Uh, when you set them high... People will rise that, to meet them. No, no question about it. I, I, I didn't. I was not um, as prepared to be a company commander. Certainly, I would like to have been. Right. Uh, right. Certainly, had not been through the normal process. Have served as a, as an executive officer and then a staff officer, and then you typically go to the captain's career course and you have another training uh, program before you become a company commander. Uh, I became a company commander in a split second yeah. uh, when when my commander was wounded. And uh, it was an incredibly rewarding time. The soldiers all stepped up around me. Uh, I was blessed with having outstanding non-commissioned officers who, who advised me and coached me. And it was a wonderful experience. So I, I commanded the company for a period of time. Um, and then fortunately, my commander was able to come back after about a month, month and a half. Uh, served again as his second in command, uh, which was that was a challenge, going from being the commander, <laughs> yes, being the right? guy in the yeah. room making the decisions, and then being uh -huh. second in command again. So that was a learning experience. Uh, and then ultimately served in a staff position, advising our battalion commander on civil affairs projects uh, before uh, redeploying and coming home. So why didn't you make a career of the military? Was that I, just not the lifestyle you wanted? I'll tell you, yeah, Matt, yeah. I, I struggled with that decision yeah. mightily. Um, th that was There have been a couple points in my life where... Uh, you know, in a spiritual sense, I, I was, I, I really struggled uh, praying through what the Lord's will for, for my life mm -hmm. was. Uh, th th that certainly was, was one of them. I loved serving in the military. I, uh, and I absolutely saw myself doing that for a career. And I went back and forth for many months struggling through that decision. Um, ultimately, in part, it was because uh, I thought I was in love, uh, <laughs> and so I was eager to, to get back home, and, and, and uh, I was beginning really for the first time in my life thinking about family yeah. and thinking about having a wife yeah. and having children, and um, I really struggled to see the military as a career mm -hmm. with a young family. Many do it, and I admire and respect them tremendously, those that, that do that. Um, for me, um, I... I uh, just was unsure that I had the the ability to, to do that well, mm -hmm. and that was not the vision I had in terms of being a husband and, and, and a father. Um, so that was part of it. The second was is after serving as a commander, um, the way the the career trajectory works in the army, uh, you serve as a period of time for many many years in a staff position before your next command becomes available. And what I loved about the army, what I loved about the job, was working with the soldiers. Uh, being with the soldiers wasn't so much the desk work, yeah, not so right, much the staff right. work. And so when I was thinking about what my career was going to look like for the next number of years, it just that wasn't what yeah. was fulfilling it's, for me. It, you see that in a lot of areas because uh, as a, a former teacher myself. Uh, folks would say, oh, you ought to become a principal. I said, well, I got in this to deal directly with the kids, not to be a firefighter, yes. right, as what principals do is putting out this fire, that fire. Uh, so it's it's interesting because that was, uh, 
you know, similarly of like, well, that's not the direction I yeah. like being with the troops, right? Yeah. No, so, right? So you decide, you know what, this isn't going to be the track I want. You come back home to Lancaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, where, where does Kate come into all this? Is this the, the uh, thought you were lo- in love uh, part? Uh, <laughs> not Kate <laughs> not, yet, not, no. Okay, all right. So <laughs> <With> someone else. <laughs> uh, so, yes, so that, and that didn't work out. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, and I'll tell you, I, I, there were years after the fact that I still struggled with that decision. Yeah. Uh, I thought, did I make the right, yeah. did I make the right decision? Because I just loved it. I loved the relationship with soldiers uh, so much. And I'm grateful that I still stay in contact with a lot of the guys, uh, the men and women that I served with. Uh, but I came home and uh, I was recruited to work for a manufacturing company, ICI Paints, in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania. Uh, the plant manager there was a uh, Harvard Business grad and a Marine Corps um, veteran. And he was hiring uh, supervisors uh, primarily that had uh, leadership experience in the military. Mm. That was his experience. And, and I remember the interview with him and, uh, you know, I was very candid about my limited experience and understanding of, of business and particularly the manufacturing yeah. uh, business. And he said, I'll teach that's, you that. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to teach you that. Stuff, I need yeah. somebody who can lead, who can make decisions and who, who can get mm-hmm. results. And, and that's why I'm going to bring you in. It was, it was a learning experience for me. Uh, I worked there for about three years uh, before I caught the political bug and uh, chart a different career path. But I learned a lot in that experience, in a supervisory experience. It was, uh, it was um, uh, the, the workforce there was organized. It was a union workforce. So it was the first time that I really, you know, coming out of the military, encountered you know, contracts and filing mm-hmm. grievances and work rules <laughs> and all those things. That, that, was, a, that was a new experience for me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so uh, where does, uh, you know, so Brian Cutler has been a part of mm-hmm. your life for a long time, uh, yes. just because you grew up or as, as friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, both of you being in office, uh, yeah. and I know that uh, you guys worked on each other's campaigns. And uh, um, that, talk about where that intersection happened, and I guess how this interest in politics uh, arose for you. Mm-hmm. So my dad's farm, where my my actually my grandparents' farm, where my uh, dad farmed when I was a first 10 years, 11 years of my life, uh, Brian lived a quarter mile down the street. So uh, I knew the Cutler family. Brian's sister, Karen, who I actually knew better at the time, Karen uh, and I went to school together from kindergarten through graduation. And we were a small elementary school, Drewmore mm-hmm. Elementary. It was one class per grade, so I knew Karen well. I certainly knew Brian was two years older, knew Brian, knew, knew Brian's family. And uh, so after high school, really had lost contact with him. Uh, Sadly, both of his parents passed away from ALS, Mm -hmm. um, and so I certainly was aware of all of that. Uh, Brian had gone in the uh, went the medical route uh, as an X-ray tech. I knew that, but really lost track of him. So when I came home, uh, as I was working at ICI Paints in Reading, I had been approached to run for a Republican committee seat in Quarryville. Now, what I didn't know at the time was is that that was a bit of a proxy battle uh, that was setting up what was going to become a uh, contest for the State House of Representatives two years later. Mm. Um, and so I was running against someone who was a very strong supporter of the incumbent State House member, Republican State House member. Uh, and I won that election. I did not know that I was being recruited to, <laughs> to, uh, to in a sense, uh, you take that person didn't out. Know that I, I didn't know it. Uh, and so after that, after that election, after I'd won that seat on the contested seat on the Republican committee, which yeah. 
is pretty rare. Right, At least in Lancaster right, County, right. have these contested you try seats. to try to get people to run for them in yes, the first exactly place. Right. The, yeah. I, I remember, you know, we had yard signs. We did a mail pizza <laughs> for a Republican <laughs> committee. At any rate, so I I, I won. Uh-huh. And uh, the gentleman I ran against was a fine man, uh, knew him and his family well. Quarryville's a small community. Yeah. Um, I, the same folks that had approached me about running for the Republican committee came back to me and said, uh, excellent job, ran a great campaign. Let's, let, we want to talk to you about the next project. <laughs> and uh, so that was the first time the idea of running for the state house was floated to me in the 100th district, the seat that Brian now holds. Well, as I was exploring that, um, and making the rounds and talking to influencers in the committee and Republican committee members, uh, the Solanco era Republican chairman, Scott Franz, uh, came to me and said, you, know, you should know there's somebody else thinking about doing this. Well, I instinctively knew in a, in a potential primary contest with an incumbent, a three-way contest is, is yeah. uh, that's nearly insurmountable. Yeah. And so I said, well, well, who is it? We need to figure this out. And he said, well, Brian Cutler. I said, well, I'm not going to run against Brian Cutler. And uh, what I did know is Scott was also having the same conversation with Brian. Scott. Uh, Scott Franz, uh-huh. uh, the, the Solanco chairman, yeah. was having a similar conversation with uh, Brian. And Brian tells the story that Scott refused to tell him my name, uh-huh. that he felt that he needed to protect my identity um, at, the, at that point in this conversation. And Brian slid across a piece of paper across the uh, the table to Scott with all of Brian's contact information on it and said, have Ryan Amick give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> Brian had figured it out. Yeah, he figured and it so out. And so that started, I yeah. think, which is an what, which is an amazing part of our journey and I think really established the relationship of trust that Brian mm-hmm. and I have. I mean, we knew each other, we were friends, but but to really forge sort of the political relationship and the relationship of trust, for seven months, Brian and I, planned a campaign for the state house without knowing which one of us is going to be the candidate. Mm-hmm. So we'll figure that out later. Mm-hmm. Let, let's plan out the campaign. Let's figure out... And then who rock, can paper, run. scissors. Uh. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> let's, let's figure out who matches up best yeah. and who's best position. And we're going to pray yeah. about it together, yeah. which we did. Yeah. Uh, we prayed. Our families prayed about it. And ultimately, in July of 05, so this was about January when the yep. initial conversation happened. In July of 05, I was really just feeling a desire to... Uh, uh, to go back to law school, to go yeah. to law school, which I never did. But I had the desire to go back to school. I was unmarried at the time. Brian was about to finish law school, was married, had, had a family. And I just I, I just became convinced that Brian was better positioned at that time to run. And so well, I went and, to him. And July of 05, of yes. course, is the infamous pay raise <laughs> yes. occurs in yes. the middle of this, right? Yeah, so yes, it's interesting yeah. because we were actually planning a campaign prior to that. Yeah. Uh, because we thought the race was winnable then. Uh, the, the pay raise and all of the maneuvering around the pay raise, uh, the unvouchered expenses, and the members yeah. taking the payment early, and the suspending of the rules to bring the vote up in the middle of the night, all of that um, really put the race And this well is all reach. planning for 2006. For 2006. So, yeah, so we the initial conversations were right after the 2004 general election in January of 2005. I made a decision in July. It's interesting. I can't remember if it was before or after the pay raise. Uh, but it was around that time. Yeah. It was early July because I was heading out for a wedding of an army buddy of mine in Colorado, and I called Brian just prior to leaving mm-hmm. on that trip and said, Brian, I think you ought to run. I'll do whatever I can to help you. Uh, and then Brian asked me, well, so you, you've helped plan this campaign. Yeah. Would you would you manage it? And so, uh, you know, it was two young guys uh, pretty, pretty early in our political involvement uh, running this campaign against a, a sitting Republican incumbent mm-hmm. in the primary. And that's how we got involved. And you ended up winning. Yes. Uh, and you became Brian's chief of staff uh, for, for a bit. Um, and then how did you end up running for a house seat as well? Yeah, so my, my plan was, uh, as I mentioned, was to go to law school. 
Yeah. Uh, Brian, you ask him about this. He'll he'll complain about this because I think he wrote <laughs> me not one but two outstanding letters of recommendation <laughs> that you never used. <laughs> that I never yeah. used uh, because my my plan was initially uh, after he won that campaign and he won that decisively against a sitting Republican yep. incumbent. And you, I love to tell the story. We did our initial baseline poll in November of 05, Brian had something like a, a positive name ID of 9%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to go from that and to win a, a primary by 18 points, uh, just was he just ran an exceptional campaign. Um, he, had, he had an okay campaign, manager. Yeah, he had an okay manager, manager but yeah, he ran an outstanding, those, ran, yeah. that's right, ran <laughs> outstanding campaign. So my plan was at that point was to go to law school. And so I went to work for Brian, and my plan was to serve as his chief of staff, to get his office, his district office up and running, his outreach plan up and running, uh, and then go to school. Uh, Around the time uh, that I was just getting started with Brian, so this is now December, January of 2006 into January 2007, just as he's taking office, I get a call from uh, Dave Hickernell, who's another sitting House Mm -hmm. member in Lancaster County, who had served as Lancaster County's clerk of courts. And Dave called me and said, there's going to be a vacancy. There's going to be opening in the clerk of courts office. Um, Dale Denlinger, the current clerk of courts, is not going to run again. Would you have an interest in, in running and serving as clerk of courts? I think it would be a great way for you to get involved. And I said, I'm certainly interested, but somebody's going to have to tell me what the clerk of courts does. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did. I spent a number of weeks really, really studying, uh, going into the office, meeting the staff, meeting the clerk of courts, and making sure that it was a job that I was up to doing and had an interest in doing. Uh, ended up seeking the endorsement, was elected clerk of courts in 2007. And this is around the time that I meet my wife, Kate, uh, because as I've mentioned, I was a southern Lancaster County, southern end guy. And, and to be honest, I thought when I passed up the opportunity to run for the House and support Brian, yeah. with given Brian's age, that I was passing up on the foreseeable future yeah. for the opportunity of serving in the in, certainly in the state house. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of being in clerk of courts, maybe someday be a county commissioner, you know, that's sort of what I was thinking. Um, although I hadn't quite put out the idea of going to law school in my, in my mind still. Um, but uh, I met my wife, Kate. Uh, my cousin, uh, Jessica, uh, my, my, my wife's father is a senior pastor at Grace Church at Willow Valley uh, in Willow Street and has been for over 30 years. Uh, my cousin and her family attended that church and became quite good friends with my now wife, Kate. And my cousin said, uh, would you be interested in, in, in meeting Kate? I think you'd be a great fit. And my, my cousin's now, this time I'm 30, just to turn 30. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jessica said, uh, there's one problem. And I said, what's that? She said, well, she's, she's a senior at Millersville. She's 22. And I said, well, it's not a problem for me. I said, <laughs> the fact that I'm 30 yeah, might be yeah, a problem for her, her, but it's yeah. not a problem for me. Uh, so she said, uh, my cousin set us up. Uh, and uh, as I like to tell Kate, you know, I turned on the charm and the rest is history. But <laughs> we were married in 2008. And that's what brought me to the 41st Legislative District, Landisville. Kate was teaching at the time at the Milton Hershey School in Hershey, where she taught for eight years mm-hmm. prior to our children being born. And uh, we were there about a year and a half when my predecessor in the state house, Katie True, announced that she wasn't going to run for re-election. And so the uh, opportunity to serve in the house and serve with Brian in the house presented itself and could never have guessed that, that it would play out the way that it did. So fast forward here to a uh, state senate seat uh, that uh, you run for. Uh, it, it was contested, of course, a, a primary was going to mostly determine the outcome of that. Uh, mm-hmm. You've been in the state Senate since, uh, what, 2014, I it's believe? Elected 2014, that's right. And uh, uh, you um, have tackled uh, a number of issues that certainly were interested at Commonwealth Partners. 
Uh, but recently you came out with uh, a report uh, that you call uh, Restore, Rebuild, and Reimagine Pennsylvania, an initiative of Senator Ryan P. Ahmed. And what's P for? Patrick. Patrick. Yes. Uh, so uh, uh, and so, talk about this report that you came out with uh, just in October here. Um, and uh, I want to dive down, of course, into some of the things that we're most passionate about, that being uh, education uh, choice. Um, mm-hmm. But talk about the, the, the general idea here, what you yeah. put together. Well, I'll back into it for a second. When I first was elected in 2014 and came into office in 2015, uh, I sat down with my new staff, uh, some of whom had worked for me, most of whom had not worked for me. And I sat down and I said, Let, let's talk about, uh, as we get started here, what we're going to be about, mm-hmm. how we're going to do business, and what's, what is going to be our public policy focus. And, and I laid out for my staff essentially a mission statement, a yeah. vision statement for how we're going to approach uh, this job. And I said, my goal is to work towards building a Pennsylvania where every resident has the opportunity to experience earned success and upward economic mobility. And what drives uh, um, an opportunity society in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania? And I would, I would uh, submit strong families, vibrant communities, the free enterprise system, and great schools. Um, there's more to it than mm-hmm. that, but that's really how I articulated mm-hmm. it. For, you get for those staff. things right, uh, you're going to uh, create that's, a foundation, that's, that's right? That's exactly right. Yeah. There was a study done a number of years ago that I, I, I've lost the citation, yeah. uh, but I, I still love to share in speeches. I have to pull the citation again. That uh, essentially said you could dramatically improve the, the GDP, the gross domestic product, if you simply could encourage young people to, uh, to go to school, yeah. um, get a job, get married, have children and do it in that order. That order is important. Yes. <laughs> so um, keeping in mind that that was sort of uh, the mission statement, the vision statement that I set at the outset. Mm-hmm. As we entered into COVID, uh, one of the real limitations has, has, has well, been... Let me just stop you mm-hmm. there, because as I'm thinking of this, I, I don't think many elected officials kind of view their role as like, look, we need to have a mission and a vision that we can articulate as a, an office like, here's what we're about. Um, is that kind of unique, would you say, that uh, that many of your colleagues are not kind of uh, strategically planning or approaching this as like, look, we're sort of a, uh, we're, we're a company uh, mm-hmm. amongst ourselves that we're selling something here, mm-hmm. uh, not only to our community, but also to my colleagues mm-hmm. uh, when you're trying to get 25 other people to join you on a vote. Yes. Uh, but is that kind of, would you say that's kind in, of unique? In, 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 in my experience, yeah. it is unique. Yeah. And, and I have to tell you, my, my staff, I had a number of members, uh, staff members come up to me afterwards who, who've had long experience serving with the General Assembly and, and working mm-hmm. with legislators saying, I've, I've never heard a member talk mm. this way mm. and found it refreshing to say it, it gives us a sense of purpose, uh, which is helpful in terms of the staff. I think we as Republicans, as conservatives, don't always do a great job of explaining mm. the why. Mm. Yep. We talk about the policies. Yeah. We talk about school choice. We talk about regulatory reform and tax reform. But I'm not sure we do a great job of communicating to the broader public why. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's like we talk a lot about the features that we talk yes. but we don't talk about the benefits. Yes. It's, you know, the why. It's, you know, this is, okay, we do this. And here's the benefit of it, the mm-hmm. why, right? And that, yeah. I think you are absolutely spot on. And, and, the, and it helps in terms of discipline. Um, there, there, 
you know, in this line of work, I have folks approach me all the time with issues that they wanted me to carry the, the, the banner for, particularly if you have any measure of success here in terms of getting mm -hmm. legislation across the finish line. Uh, every special interest in this town is going to approach you in terms of the policy issues you're going to work on. And it really helps me, and I'm not going to suggest I always get it right, but it helps me sort of clarify, yeah. that's a great issue. I support it, but I'm not sure that's something I should be working on right now. I'm not the best person to carry the flag forward mm -hmm. on this. Uh, so it helps us organize uh, priorities and the issues uh, that, that we're going to work on during a given uh, year legislative session. Um, so uh, and it's, this is something I've tried to communicate as well to my colleagues. That I think there's real value for us as a Senate Republican caucus uh, to, to, uh, to be the opportunity caucus, to talk about economic opportunity, to talk about upper mobility, because I think we can unify uh, across the Commonwealth various demographic groups and, and folks who have uh, various interests across the Commonwealth around this concept of, of opportunity, building an opportunity society here. Well, I don't want us to just, you know, talk through because it's a, a pretty lengthy document in terms mm -hmm. of like laying some of this out. If folks want to uh, dive deeper, where could they find this document? We have a lot of information yeah. that we would love to share uh, for folks to take a look at and to provide feedback. It's not, uh, you know, really this is intended to start a conversation. Uh, but it's senatoramit.com. My website, encourage folks to go right on the homepage. You'll see a tab, Restore, Rebuild, Reimagine Pennsylvania. And you can see, actually, you can see the entire process that we use to develop this. We use Zoom roundtable conversations through throughout the senatorial district. We did telephone town hall, Facebook live town hall events. We really tried to get creative during COVID because one of the limitations yeah. was the ability to have in-person interactions mm -hmm. and do live town hall events, which I love doing. Uh, so we, we tried to open up as many channels of communication. We had a survey for folks to complete. Uh, and all of that, um, the feedback we received is uh, what went into develop. Uh, we compiled all that into this report, and then we provided a legislative response to the feedback that we received. All of that information, including the process, uh, and I believe recordings of the Zoom roundtables uh, that we held are all available at that mm -hmm. tab on my website. At so, I mean, it's really saying, all right, here's our, our, our mission, here's mm -hmm. our vision, and here are then our objectives, what we want to achieve, and then the tactics, right? So some of those tactics are really just legislation. Yes. And uh, you mentioned COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things, of course, that we know is that a lot of kids lost a lot of school That's right. uh, because of the shutdown and um, just frankly, not the um, preparedness um, to handle that from a long term. I mean, we've always had snow days, right? Yeah. But we never said, all right, let's just take all this online so we never have a snow day again That uh, um, and implementing more of this online learning. Uh, I know that part of your uh, proposals that you've got in there are back on track education uh, scholarship accounts. Um, that, of course, is something of great interest to us at Commonwealth Partners. Uh, talk about why that's an important uh, tactic mm -hmm. uh, that uh, you know will help us restore, rebuild, and reimagine PA. Well, I think it's quite clear that there are uh, there are many students that have been left behind, certainly through the COVID experience. Uh, tremendous loss of classroom time, learning time in the spring. Uh, seeing that again in the fall. Uh, I think that's more pronounced in high poverty areas mm -hmm. among certain demographic groups in the Commonwealth. And I think we have a responsibility to ensure uh, that that's, those students, all students, have uh, access to a high quality education. So um, look, I, I am, to be quite frank, to be quite clear about it, I believe um, that this is just the start of a broader conversation um, around thinking differently about how we fund education mm -hmm. in the Commonwealth. Is, is it our interest to fund institutions? 
um, or, or is it our is it in the Commonwealth's interest to fund students um, to, to fund students? And I would I would argue uh, that the mandate that's given to us in the Pennsylvania Constitution to provide for a thorough and efficient system of public education is for the benefit of the students. Yeah. And so public policy ought to reflect that, ought to be student-centered, including how we fund education. Um, I don't believe institutions should feel entitled to those dollars at all, whether they be public or private. Uh, families ought to be able to exercise choice um, to choose the education provider that best meets the needs of, of their child. Mm -hmm. And so our edu how we fund education, the dollars following the students uh, through the education savings account concept, uh, I think that is that day is coming. Yeah. That is yeah. that is the future. Yeah. It's a matter is, is Pennsylvania going to get on board now, uh, or are, are we going to are we going to wait to the detriment of many thousands, millions of students? So, uh, and we and I obviously agree one hundred percent. But a lot of your colleagues don't. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, they they kind of. I to me, it's more of you know what? It's always been this way that our local public school has been sort of that's what we think of uh, schooling. Uh, but COVID has certainly changed that. Yes. I think we're seeing. I, I saw a, a Pew survey that said 40% of school-aged uh, parents uh, of, with school-aged children are making uh, different choices mm -hmm. for their children's education this fall, um, in part because they've had to. Uh, yes. and, and some of them found out, I don't ever want to homeschool in my life ever again. Mm -hmm. uh, but they say, you know what, I need some uh, an alternative um, mm -hmm. to you know, uh, the the online, that may not work for some kids. I mean, having four kids, I've seen it where that's worked for some and has been a disaster for others. And it's that, how do we create a mechanism whereby every kid with their unique learning abilities or needs has access to a different uh, school option um, that will serve them the best? And I think that, you know, that the whole concept of funding kids rather than institutions is an idea whose time has clearly come, mm -hmm. but uh, the public policy, there's a lot of competing interests there, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what it comes down to is some people uh, like the old way of doing things and mm -hmm. aren't going to give that up uh, um, lightly. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as, as horrific as this COVID experience has, has been, I think without question, it has changed the conversation. Uh, and I think presents uh, presents a real opportunity. And that's what the Restore, Rebuild, Reimagine Pennsylvania really is all about, is recognizing the, the challenges of experience. But there have been lessons learned and, and opportunities that have presented themselves that we, we need to, uh, we need to, to mm -hmm. learn from and take advantage of. And I think, uh, I think there are more members of the General Assembly who see the importance of individualizing, customizing learning experience for students, uh, that there's great inequity in, in the system, and uh, that school Choice is, is an important uh, uh, component of, of ensuring that all children in Pennsylvania have access to a high-quality education. You know, it's interesting. I, I think it's changed the, uh, some of the conversation around cyber charter education, yep. choice around cyber charter. Uh, there are many members uh, pre-COVID, uh, both sides of the aisle, that were uh, becoming increasingly hostile yep. to cyber charter education. Well, this fall coming back when you had many traditional uh, brick-and-mortar public schools closing their doors and not offering uh, in-person instruction or offering a subpar uh, online yeah. option for students. Uh, many families said the cyber charter education is a really important component of our system, uh, giving us, giving our family choice. Yeah. Um, 
high quality options. And I think that is, uh, I, I'm seeing that reflected yeah. among my, many of my colleagues. So I think it's changing the conversation well, here. And sadly, uh, I think the traditional public schools uh, didn't uh, embrace the offer from cyber schools early on to say, hey, we'll come alongside and help you do this well. Uh, I think a lot of people thought, okay, we'll be closed down for two weeks, four weeks, uh, six, okay, the entire year. We're, so uh, just not being prepared for that. And this is where we want to have the different um, you know, uh, venues of how we deliver education mm-hmm. to collaborate. Because if our goal is to help kids, that's right. uh, and, and certainly cyber schools are public schools. They're mm-hmm. just a different type. You would hope that there would be that kind of collaboration and saying, all right, how do we figure this out? Uh, for the kids, yeah. So and, and uh, you're right, and, and if and that partnership exists, I'm absolutely convinced um, that that these systems can help and spur each other to innovate and to yes. to improve. Yep. I'll never forget. It's it's probably been eight years ago now. I toured a Kip Charter School in uh, Washington mm-hmm. D.C. and I visited the Kip School with two of my local public school superintendents in Lancaster County, and I asked them on the drive home after the school. I said. I understand uh, the concerns you have with charter and cyber charter education and, and uh, uh, the, the, the political dynamic around that conversation. I said, but would you concede at all that the charter movement, the cyber charter movement, has forced you to, um, to innovate, mm-hmm. to create, mm-hmm. and, and to, to, to be better? To, uh, and both of them, without hesitation, in a moment of candor, said, yes, no yeah. question. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think uh, cyber charter schools or brick-and-mortar charter schools could be tremendously helpful to our traditional public schools and, and vice versa. Yeah. Well, competition always makes it's us better. It's That's kind right. of raising those expectations as we, we were talking about early on. Um, I know uh, wrapping things up here, uh, frustration levels have been incredibly high with Governor Wolf. Uh, mm-hmm. He's been unilateral making decisions, um, not even talking to uh, the majorities in the House or the Senate, uh, pretty much uh, had full, um, uh, you know, authority with executive orders and the blessing of our Supreme Court. Um, Where do we go from here? Is there going to be a restoration of that balance of power, the checks and balances? And um, really, I would say the lawmaking Mm -hmm. function of the legislative branch, which Really has been circumvented. Am I am I am I overstating this? No, th- this this is an essential uh, conversation uh, through this election cycle. Uh, you know, in terms of preserving our Republican majorities in the House and Senate, so that we can continue to make that case, uh, we need to elect a governor in two years um, that in, in is will recognize the importance of of the ba- restoring the balance mm-hmm. of power. Um, we need to take our judicial elections uh, quite seriously. Uh, our row offices, uh, attorney general, auditor general, those offices are phenomenally important. Uh, but that's a that's a feature really of this report as well as the government reform and restoring the balance of power, uh, reigning in the governor's power under the emergency declaration. Uh, it, it's it's quite remarkable when you think about what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has essentially said, yeah. and that is the governor um, ha- is can can essentially claim. Uh, extraordinary power for the duration of his term. Yep. And the the only way to prevent that or to end that is a supermajority of the General yeah. Assembly. Keeping in mind, the General Assembly is the one who granted the governor the statutory authority to begin with. Yeah. It's, it's illogical to think that the General Assembly would not have retained unto yes. itself yeah. the ability to end that 
and actually creating a uh, threshold that is higher than impeachment yes. uh, in order exactly uh, right. to overrule the governor's uh, unilateral powers right now. Yes. I mean, it is. And I think that uh, I know that these statutes were created on the uh, tail end of uh, Three Mile Island and yes. all the concerns of making sure you have an executive who can act quickly. Um, giving 90 days, I think that that has to be an outlier in the yes. country. I think yes. most are, you know, three or four weeks and then require legislative approval to continue. That's right. Uh, Governor Wolf has none of those restrictions. Mm-hmm. He continues to issues, uh, you know, emergency declarations right. uh, in perpetuity. I mean, in, in you know, without... Uh, he could do this for the next two years and really he, he just circumvent. I mean, the, the, the uh, declaration of emergency around uh, the opioid epidemic has been extended for years. Yes. Uh, so, th- no, that's exactly right. What, what we're arguing is is not that the governor shouldn't have power to act in an emergency to an imminent threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after 30 days, the governor should come back to the General Assembly, come back to the people assembled. Yes. As the General Assembly, we're the people assembled. The governor should come back to the people and and make the case and uh if he's able to if he or she is able to make that case then through legislative approval extend that declaration uh but but to in a to to have been granted these powers and to um to continue to exercise these powers with a total lack of transparency or any accountability is is really problematic in a civil society well we know we'll have to fix that uh, at some point not sure that uh, governor wolf will be willing to do so after this election but uh absolutely need to take care of it. Well, Senator Ryan Ament, uh, thanks for joining me on Brews and Views. It's been great. Uh, appreciate getting to know you better and uh, the things that you're passionate about. So I wish you well and uh, uh, continued success. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. 